So this is our last night together. Um, can you hear in the back? Let me turn it up a little. How about now? Yeah? Okay. Last night together. Um, some of you may have some uh, physical and uh, mental resonance to that. Um, as though it's actually something real. As though there really is a last night as though it's a thing compared to the thing that was last night and the thing that'll be tomorrow night. Um, it happens as a reflex. It's not something that we do, it's something that happens. This will have some relevance as we go through this evening. Um, I've been told that this is supposed to be the talk that answers all of your questions. Uh, needless to say, I fired my PR department. The mistake that was made is that among the many psychic powers I've developed through meditation practice over all these years, mind reading is not one of them. So I have no way to know what all your questions are. Uh, but Larry will have a talk tomorrow with you all that will answer all the questions that are left over. <laughs> My wife is a... Uh, psychotherapist, and I think really a wonderful one. Uh, I've been trying to find out for many, many years how to transfer my PhD to hers because she's really the one who ought to have it. Um, she also works as a guidance counselor uh, in an elementary school in Brookline, Massachusetts. And um, at the end of the week, um, Friday afternoon at 2 o'clock when school is out, uh, she's instituted joke day. And uh, grades K through 4, she works with the lower school. Anybody who uh, wants to tell a joke, they line up, and sometimes the queue is impressively long. They tell a joke, and they get a Jolly Rancher. Uh, good deal for everybody, right? The kids get the Jolly Ranchers. Good joke, bad joke, not really a joke, doesn't matter. They get the Jolly Rancher, excellent. Um, in some ways, the way all school should be, I think. Um, for her, she gets this parade of, you know, up to eight-year-olds uh, coming in, telling her jokes. Uh, any of you who have worked in a school system or know, are close to someone who worked in a school system, know that by Friday afternoon, you need all the jokes you can get, because before, it's often a battleground. Um, so in comes little Danny. Oh, Mrs. Phillips, here's my joke. So imagine you're in a room with no doors and no windows. There's no way to escape. Now, those of you who know the answer to this, please be quiet. No way to escape. How do you get out? Stop imagining. <laughs> Obviously, little Danny's an eight-year-old Buddha. Uh, I've tried to recruit him. He's a little on the young side, but Gene's keeping an eye out for me. He's and the kid understood the joke. Right? We're talking about a very advanced being here. Um, stop imagining. Now, this is not a rap on imagination. Imagination can be absolutely joyous and wonderful, uh, essential to creativity. Um, the thinking piece uh, can really build a windowless, doorless, no escape prison for us. Um, you know, I, I said that I would 
double back and pick up our hero Jojo uh, and his uh, response to his teacher Nanchuan when uh, Nanchuan asked him or Jojo asked, "What's the Tao? What's the way? What's the truth? What's the awakening? What's the awakened mind?" And Jojo said, "Ordinary mind is the way, the awakened mind, the Tao." And uh, Jojo kind of jumped right over that, didn't get it. Uh, and went right to, well, shall I, how sh shall I direct myself towards it? You know, how do I get there? How do I get this? Um, he's already missed the target. I mean, he's the archer, shot it in the ground, uh, missed it. And uh, uh, remember the Nanchuan says, uh, if you direct yourself towards it, you betray your practice. Jiaozhou being a gifted student, uh, then says, well, if I don't direct myself, how will I know it? I mean, if I don't do something, uh, again, missing the point that, gee, maybe there's nothing to do. Maybe it's right under your feet, you know, sort of as plain as the nose on your face. How shall I direct myself towards it? If you direct yourself towards it, you betray your practice. Well, how am I going to know it then? The way is beyond knowing and not knowing. If you know, if you've got ideas about how to get to it, what it is, that's delusion. Not knowing, blankness. It's not nothing, it's not something. What is it? When you come truly upon the genuine way, You'll find it vast and boundless like outer space. How can this be talked about in terms of knowing or not knowing, yes or no, right or wrong? Jiaozhou came in with an idea. He was going to ask a question and get an answer. And the answer was not what he expected. Nanchuan completely shifted the field on him. And Jojo missed it. He was wedded to his plan. There's something there. I want to get it. This guy's going to tell me how to get it. And I'm going to pursue him until I get what I want. Jojo was trapped by his ideas. Um, so it's critical that we understand thinking. It's the thinking that goes on in the mind that creates these prisons for us. It's the thinking that creates the bondage, that creates the suffering. And understanding uh, this bondage, how it works, how it affects us, how it plays out uh, internally and externally, and how we can relate to it is, is really, in some ways, the first step on the way to freedom. Freedom and bondage are not separate things. They go together. So what's wrong with thinking? I mean, we've been engaged in a lot of it, <laughs> I suspect, during this week. Um, so what's, what's the problem? What's wrong with thinking? Well, a, a, a disclaimer at the beginning of this talk, don't check your common sense at the door. Okay? Thinking is a useful and essential tool. There is such a thing as skillful thinking. There's such a thing as skillful planning. I mean, none of us would have gotten here without somewhat skillful planning with thinking involved as a part of that. The problem is that um, we can confuse the map with the territory so that we make plans, we rehearse them. Sometimes we rehearse them obsessively as though somehow if I just rehearse the plans enough, it's going to increase the chances of it working in the future, which is really rather silly, right? Because the plan is based on information from the past which by definition is no longer current, 
projected into a future that's never existed before. And we get this idea that, and we're, we're crushed sometimes, badly disappointed, when we find that our plan doesn't match up with what we find. And we can confuse the map with the territory. We can get so wedded to the map of how I want it to be, what my plan is, that we can go right to the edge. The map doesn't say anything about a cliff here. Hmm. But this is a map. It's my map. And now we're in deep trouble. Because in order to set the map aside, I have to set my identification with that map aside. And that doesn't go easily, usually. So, off we go. We've all had that experience. And uh, we've all had the experience of how uh, grinding uh, the gears can feel internally when life says, this is what I am. I really don't care about what you want or what your plan is. This is what I am. And I'm going to keep being just like this. And if you want to step off the cliff, well, that's also just like this. So thinking, great. Planning, great. Mapping, great. Not so great when we get so identified with it that we confuse what we want to be what we expect to be with what, in fact, what it is and what we find once we get to that place. Um, in many ways, thinking is uh, out of its league. Uh, it's well-equipped to do certain things and incredibly poorly equipped for others. Um, and so part of this work uh, is really about being able to tell the difference between skillful and unskillful thinking. And there's a fairly easy criteria for that. I'll, I'll come to that later. Um, I read something about this a long time ago and, and uh, have been thinking about it a lot since. But this idea that, that somewhere in human development, thinking took a wrong turn. Um, that uh, it developed, you know, we were, had this sort of flat brow. And then, you know, five million years later, this thing's filled out. <laughs> right? Now we have this prefrontal cortex <laughs> and the capacity to think. And it really makes a lot of sense if you think about thinking as a survival tool in, in uh, service to the body. Right? This is going to have a chance of surviving in the wild against a saber-toothed tiger? I don't think so. Uh, in, the, in an ice age against a woolly mammoth, the odds are real low. But this capacity gives the human animal a leg up on other animals that don't plan, that don't think in the same way. And as long as it's in, in, in the service of the body, and we can use that metaphorically as well, Things are things are great. Well, I mean, we're still human beings, and you know, sickness, aging, and death goes with the territory. But that aside, those small things aside. Um, so at some point, it seems as though thinking um, took a place of ascendancy that it's simply not prepared for. Okay? It's a little bit like um, I hire a gardener. Well, I don't hire a gardener. <laughs> Someone might hire a gardener. And, uh, you know, pay him some money to take care of the garden. And they weed and they cut and they plant and they trim and, you know, they do what gardeners do. Uh, and it's going along great. And you come home from work one day and the gardener's cleaned up your garage. Wow, all right. Didn't really ask him to, but it's okay. I mean, the garage needs cleaning up, so and he's not asking for any more money. This is a pretty good deal. Come home another day, and um, he's 
cooking your supper. Garden, garage, supper. Hmm. It's pretty good food, so, and he's not asking for any more money. It's still a pretty good deal. Come home, he's balancing your checkbook. Right? He's gone onto your computer, and he's figured all this stuff out, and now he's got your checkbook. You come home again, he's in bed with your partner. He's not doing what he was hired to do. Right? And he's taken over at a level that you may think he's qualified for, but it's not working for me. Right? It's creating all kinds of difficulty. The thinking uh, body relationship is a real interesting one in that the body knows what it needs to survive. Part of, of self-knowing, part of self-education is, is getting uh, intimately acquainted with what the body needs, finding out how much sleep it needs, and then honoring that. Finding out what kinds of foods it needs when, and honoring that. And it'll be different from this time to that time. What kind of exercise? How much and when? How much liquid? How much and when? The body tells us very clearly if we listen. There's just enormous intelligence in the body. The mind, the thinking, can be in wonderful service of that. However, look at what thinking does. It imagines somehow it's not dependent on the body for its existence. Because it will pour all sorts of toxins in there based on what I want. It'll engage in all kinds of self-destructive behaviors as though somehow it's not affecting the body. And if somebody comes along and says, that's not good for you. Okay, so you say, and okay, I'll try, but somehow or other, we end up doing the same self-destructive things over and over and over. Even though we may put our best effort into breaking that cycle, somehow it's doing us. So when that happens, Things are completely out of balance. Thinking can't survive without the body. That selfing piece is so um, invested in continuing to want what it wants and do whatever it takes to get what it wants that it will sacrifice the very thing that its, its continued existence is dependent on. That's crazy. That's incoherence. And that's common to us as human beings. I mean, to one degree or another, most, if not all of us, are not living the understanding that we have in that regard completely. And the woman I met with during the summer that I mentioned last, uh, last time, Dimmel at the car, uh, said that it's a very, very rare human being uh, that lives their understanding in every aspect of their lives. So, uh, you know, we, we need to have some realism about this, but also, you know, set the bar in a way that uh, challenges these assumptions and how the mind undermines what's in the whole uh, wholeness of the body-mind system's best interest. Uh, thinking lies to us. And one of the things that's wrong with thinking is it just flat out lies. Um, I, I have to make this cell phone call. I just have to do that. Really? Well, maybe. I'm on call. I wasn't able to find somebody to cover my patients. I need to, you know, check my answering service periodically. To I don't. Thank God, but I could have. Um, there may be good reasons, just as there are good reasons to move while we're sitting. However, what the mind says in terms of what a good reason is, is often untrue. 
if I sit here for another 30 seconds, I'm going to die. Really? You can hold your breath for 30 seconds. Doesn't usually kill me. Well, if I sit here for another 30 seconds, my head will explode. Cool. (laughs) We'll wake up the whole room, we'll write you up in a medical journal, and you'll be famous and we'll be rich. Uh, It just lies to us about all kinds of things. Um, I need X. Right? And we live in a culture that just plays that one to the hilt. Right? I need a cell phone. I need a Blackberry. I need two computers. I need a laptop. I need a thing in my ear when I'm driving down the road. I really need this. You know, I can't I cannot do without it. I mean, how people lived twenty years ago, who knows? <laughs> Badly, apparently. <laughs> but that's what this mind does. Again it's a little nutty when you really start to look at it. Thought by its very nature is a fragmenting process. Thought abstracts a piece and then works with it. That's the nature of thought. It, It can't hold the wholeness. It can't see the whole thing. It abstracts a piece. And it may abstract another piece. And that's fine. That, in a lot of ways, that works. What happens is it confuses, often, the part with the whole. And that's where we get into trouble. Because I want this. I want to have this relationship with this person. And that's the fragment that gets focused on. And then the complexities of what results with that often goes into the fog. Oh, they're married. Oh, I'm married. Oh. (laughs) Kids. Hmm. Oh, it's okay. Never mind. This is what I want. And it just, it ignores all that other stuff at its peril. Um, And often what it does to make it better makes it worse. Right? I mean, anybody in here not had that experience? It's unimaginable to me. Um, It's so common amongst human beings. I want um, B. So I'll do this to get B. Except it gets me C, which I don't want. But I persevere in this, which still gets me B, which gets me C, you'll follow this in a minute, which I don't want. It perseveres in a kind of behavior that is often self-destructive. The mind says it wants this, but does it in a way that gets something else. And again, significant problems. Um, Look at Iraq. Fear comes up as a result of 9-11. The idea that security can be gained externally by doing this is a fragmenting based on neurochemical fog, fear, which in fact gets us what we don't want. On top of that, losing track of all the fragments, this becomes a magnet that pulls all the other fragments towards it. Gosh, what a surprise. Oh, and then, okay, we've made the mess. Well, this is what we need to do it better. This will make it better. Worked real well, right? Again, thinking, okay? And there's, none of us are, are um, 
none of us get a free pass on that one. You know, that, that that's, to one degree or another, that seems to be how the human mind functions. And if we think that it's actually not doing those things, all we have to do is pick up a newspaper and see how what we do thinking that it will improve the environment in fact makes it worse. What we think will, that will improve the geopolitical situation actually makes it worse. And, and this is just not a function of our beloved leader in Washington, D.C. This is a systemic problem. Um, I don't know, some of you maybe have, I've not. I've not been in the streets or parked out front of Capitol, Capitol Hill saying, this is not right, this is incoherent, this is destructive. I pay my taxes, and as a result, I kill children in Iraq. This whole thing works as a system. The other thing that thinking does is it struggles against itself. And those of you who have been in groups with me, and I would guess with these guys as well, have talked about this in one way or another. Uh, it's, it's most clearly manifested as, um, I shouldn't be this way. I want this to be different. I don't like this. I want to change this. As though the this that we're talking about is somehow different than that which wants to change it. It's like, okay, here's an observer, and it's got a, it's got a take on the observed, and it's going to now do whatever it needs to do to get what it wants, not knowing that it's all thinking. It's all the same piece. If I can think of and remember it, I'll go back to that in some detail, because this idea that there's an observer and an observed in the mind is uh, not true. And it's a fundamental support for the delusions that the mind, the mind creates on a continuous and regular basis. So what gives this the oomph? I mean, it's obviously incredibly powerful. It drives things. It drives us. It drives communities. It drives the planet in ways that are just clearly self-destructive. And yet it continues to operate with enormous power. <clears throat> there are at least a couple of things in this. One is that, that uh, there's, there's created a biochemical reaction, a, a really nasty feedback loop between thinking and the body. Um, I have a thought, just pops in the mind. It's a scary thought. Okay, it's about somebody I care about, or, or maybe it's about sitting up in front of you all and doing this talk tonight, uh, when I've been told it should be the talk that answers all questions. Right? So, mm, there's some resonance in the body. Well, then the mind says something about that. Now, on, on my better nights, it'll say, hmm, maybe you want to take a look at that. Or maybe the intelligence of just knowing just knows that, and it just, that's it. There's just the knowing. Wonderful. Often, the mind says something about that. You'll be okay. Don't worry about it. Worry? No, 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 don't worry about it. It's okay. You won't make a fool out of yourself. Fool? <laughs> now the body and the mind are really cooking this does this, this does this, and it goes back up here, and off we go. And it creates, and, and it, you all feel it. I mean, there's nobody in this room that's not had this experience, that this thing just, it revs up. It's like a machine. It's, it's automatic. It's extremely mechanical. It's like the button gets pushed, and up comes the machine, and it spits out these little widgets. And the widgets are almost always the same thing. I mean, how many of us actually have original creative thoughts about this kind of stuff? 
I mean, you've had an opportunity to really look at what the mind produces around these kinds of things. You know, our favorite sort of things to obsess about or be fearful about or whatever. Right? A lot of you come up with real original, creative ways, you know, that the mind responds to that. There may have been a kind of seeing that is, um, one might say, behind thought, a kind of intelligence, a kind of ground that has an, an impact on that. Okay? As, as we watch, as there's a watching of this, the whole thing begins to slow down in the, way, in the light of that awareness. And it reveals itself to itself in a way that just it can't maintain what it's doing. Now, it doesn't mean it goes away. Okay? This stuff is really deeply conditioned. And just because we see it once and it goes away once, mind will say, up, oh, done, great, and then wham, it comes back at the next setting and whacks us in the back of the head, and, and we're back in the same cycle again. Oh, this meditation stuff doesn't work. I'm a bad meditator. No, you're really not. You've got some, they say you're hope, you've got some hope. Well, I don't really, I don't know what they're talking about. And on and on it goes. You know, and we wonder why we feel like we're, we've stuck our head in a hornet's nest. Right? I mean, we're in this, this electro-neurochemical firestorm in there. And, and depending on how um, deep uh, the particular conditioning around this pattern goes, I mean, it can be, as you know, very powerful. Trigger panic attacks, can trigger dissociative experiences, uh, can trigger nightmares, all kinds of stuff. Can trigger paranoid kinds of experiences. I mean, it's, it's extremely powerful and can really affect the health of the body. You know, as this stuff gets going, that firestorm is not helpful, healthy, or kind to our body. It's just not. So there's this, this enormous push of, of chemical stuff that's loosed in the body. You know, if it's something we really, really like, we get this endorphin bath. And it's great. It's great. And we get addicted to it. And we don't like it being taken away from us. We don't usually like what is identified as really pleasant not to be there. And when somebody starts poking around in it, threatening to take it away, it's like our addiction to oil. We'll go to war around that kind of stuff. That the, that the mind gets addicted to what's going on in the body and will do just about anything it can do to keep that going. Healthy, not healthy, don't care. If it's uh, something that uh, creates profoundly uncomfortable sensations, that the, you know, that uh, let's say we get a strong rush of adrenaline. We'll do anything to get away from what's unpleasant. That often drives us into very unskillful actions based on fragmentary thinking, based on um, confused incoherent thinking that drives us to act out of that desire to get away, that aversion to get away from what's profoundly unpleasant. Where do we feel it? Oh, you made me feel this way. Well, if I just change this, this will go away. Missing completely. The mind's doing it to itself. I'm the torturer, I'm the torturer, and I'm the tortured. And the mind plays that in a way that it's not all the same thing. I'm the deceiver. I'm the deceived. It all plays in the same tight interlocking system. And it gets triggered in very reflexive ways. I mean, we've, I think we've all had the experience where uh, something, you know, we're in conversation with somebody or we're walking down the street or can be anything. And uh, something triggers 
a memory. We're relating to X, okay, whatever it is. Y gets triggered, resonates in the body, and all of a sudden, we're no longer relating to X. We're relating to Y. We're now relating to that internal shift. And maybe it's, I really don't like the way you're talking to me right now. Or, most of us as parents have, have had at least the urge, if not acted it out, to say to our child, basically, if you'll just shut up, I'll feel better. Don't express yourself this way because it's making me feel uncomfortable. So if you just change that, that behavior, I'll be okay. Which sets up a whole other dynamic, right? I have to then either enforce that, unless I've managed to create a very compliant child which has problems of its own. I have to crush that. Or, what? I have to ignore it creates a whole different set of problems. It leaves me, and this may be the worst, probably not the worst for the child, but it's the worst for the relationship and worst for me. I'm now dependent on something that no matter how I control it is going to create a problem. Because I've externalized this onto my daughter Jessica. And um, I'm now dependent, my internal, I've made my internal state dependent on her being different. She can no longer be who she is. She can't express her true nature because I have uncomfortable feelings that I don't like, so she should stop that. Don't express your true nature. Don't be a Buddha. Don't actualize your true nature as you are right now. I'm feeling uncomfortable. And you can see what nuttiness that creates in relationships. Again, the mind deceives itself in this way. Additionally, there are deeply held beliefs that have the force of necessity. It, it is this way. It is this way. It has to be this way. It can't be any other way. These beliefs um, <clears throat> are sometimes in, ex, expressed as, I'm unworthy of love. Um, I will always be uh, when somebody yells at me, it means I'm bad. If I get this particular kind of stimulus, it triggers this deeply held belief that I'm inadequate, bad, whatever. These are often not in awareness. All of this is part of the learning aspect that all three of us has been, have been talking about. What Larry mentioned in his talk last night, it's about being learning to be with what is and in the process learning about ourselves. I mean, what do I learn in my relationship with Jess? about me, about what goes on in this mind, in this body, and how it affects this relationship. You know, six-year-old Jesse, 18-year-old Jesse, God, how does it happen? 30-year-old Jesse is a mirror for me that will reflect myself back to myself with crystal clarity. It's really remarkable. And the the um, the anger, the rush, the whatever. She's she's got nothing to do with that. She's the proximate cause, if you will. And there's the opportunity for me to learn about this being. And in that learning, it shifts the relationship. It has to. There's no way it can't. Will it solve all the problems? Of course not. I mean, part of the reason we have human relationships is because it creates problems. It gives us something to work on. You know? If we didn't have that, I mean, life would be a bore. Um, and, you know, people that do what I do in my other life would be out of business. Can't have that. 
Um, so these, these powerful beliefs drive this system. Um, and there's a very interesting thing that happens <clears throat> in the thinking mind. It has the capacity to believe that it splits itself off into two parts. Um, there's an I, there's a me. Roughly stated, the I is what does, the me is what's done too. They're not different at all. They both are a product of thought. Thought, conditioning, all of that creates an image that is identified as a me or an I. An I is a very different proposition. Is there, well, I don't want to ask that question. It's diagnostic, so I won't ask you if you actually experience this. Uh, I'm guessing that most of you who are sitting here now would not uh, disagree that you experience yourself as being here. You can say, I am. There's a sense of beingness, a sense of presence. You may not be able to say anything else with any certainty, but most of us would not argue that there's something here. And um, that I amness is not personal. It doesn't depend on a name. It doesn't depend on an image. It doesn't depend on a, a, a bunch of experiences that lead, lead to a self-image. That I amness, which we all can experience like right now, is mysterious, inexplicable, completely impervious to any sort of language description, vast and boundless like outer space. No inner or outer. Do you know where your beingness stops? <laughs> Check it out. I mean, it's tough enough if you close your eyes to know where the arm starts and stops. Right? There's some sensation in there, but I can't tell exactly. And I've got pretty good boundaries, quote unquote. But when it comes to that sort of thing, if you really sit with it, you can't really tell exactly where one starts and the other stops. It blends in to each other. Okay, I lost my track. Uh, is my uh, stage manager uh, current with me? So where did I? Where where was I just a second ago? Thank you. Uh, Bobby actually has become my stage manager. She's much more important to me than my PR person. Uh, <laughs> occasionally, occasionally this mind will go blank. It's really interesting. It's something that I've, that's happened to me my whole life, but it happened during my talk the other night. And uh, Bobby had been in one of the groups where I talked about the two things that really struck me very strongly that Dumoulin said to me. And I'm sitting here, and I said, well, wait a second. Most of you were here, and, and I'm sort of waiting for it to come. And, and, and Bobby goes, why are you not awake? Why are you not free? <laughs> oh! For the first time in my life, I'm loving hearing voices. <laughs> this is really good news. So there's this I amness, and then there's this me. I am angry. I am sad. I am inadequate. I am scared. I am a therapist. I'm a meditation teacher. I'm a student. I'm a parent, I'm a child, I'm a, I'm a partner, I'm, I'm a son, I'm a citizen. I am? Take your pick. On any given day, pick one. Uh, you have 15 conversations with somebody during the day and we're created somewhat differently in every single one of those conversations. Is there some continuity? Sure. 
But in some of those conversations, the only continuity is the uh, piece of identity I have in my pocket in the form of a driver's license. Because there are times when I could easily say, that's not me. That it's so surprising. It's so dissonant. Or it's so, or it's so amazingly wonderful. That as a me, it's almost unrecognizable. So there's this me, and there's this I am-ness, and they get conflated, they get run together. Instead of I am, and there is, there's I am this. Remember Larry said, no matter what we think about ourselves, no matter who we think we are, to one degree or another, it's not true. I'm an angry guy, I'm a loving guy, I'm a scared guy, I'm a happy guy. Am I angry and happy at the same time? It's a rare occurrence. So there are these two aspects. And they work together in a way <clears throat> where thinking ends up purporting to uh, describe what's really out there. That's a fundamental error, and it gets us in trouble all the time. We're back to confusing the map with the territory. How in the world could the thinking accurately describe what's out there when it fragments all over the place, when it lies to itself, where it's, when it's uh, often more interested in its wanting or its wanting to get rid of, than what makes sense or what might be, in fact, good for the situation. That there's a me, there's a confusion between the I and the me. And thinking purports that it can actually convey what's really out there. Boy, I talk about the gardener, you know, taking over the whole household. So, what do we do about this? Nothing. It's what you've been hearing all week, right? I mean, we're like Johnny One Note up here. Um, as I've said to a number of you, this is, this is why we get your money up front. Okay? Because if we gave the option, you know, pony up halfway through the deal, you know, not going to happen. This place would go under in about six months. Um, One of the reasons to do nothing is the tool we use to try and do something is the source of the problem. Isn't that interesting? Thinking creates the mess and then has this delusion of grandeur that it can hop in and fix it. Sometimes things work out in a way that thinking is used very skillfully and can problem solve and things do get better. There is possibility of skillful thinking. In, in Vipassana work, there's direct seeing and reflective seeing. You know, we've got a mind for a reason. Unfortunately, the mind is confused about what that reason is. So, um, this whole system gets driven along, and it's doing us as it goes. Another fundamental error that we get into trouble with that's popped up in the groups with regular regularity is that I take responsibility for this. Now, it doesn't mean that if there, if there are actions that flow out of this neurochemical fog, that there are not consequences. You bet there are consequences. But am I doing that? 
does it make sense that I feel guilty because the mind's all over the place? Does it make sense that I take responsibility because I have to move? Or because I happen to you know, look up at somebody and have a reaction? It's just a reflex. It just happens. I mean, these reflexes can make a real mess out of things because they operate independently. They're not under our conscious, willful control. And the very act of trying to control them feeds them energy. One part of the mind is in conflict with another part of the mind. I mean, it's the definition of imperialistic conflict. This part of the mind knows what this part needs, and it's going to make it do it. And it never works out well in the long run, at the very least, interpersonally or internally. So when we say, learn to rest in awareness, what we're saying is, keep our hands off of that, leave it alone, because it's very likely, without clear seeing, we're going to make it worse. And then we're just going to hurt more. I mean, there's a very, very tight correlation between these things. The mind will say, we're wasting our time. This doesn't work. Ha, you see, I didn't go away, so this, this mindfulness stuff, this pain, it's, you know, save your money and go to the Bahamas next time. Because, see, we told you it should have gone away, but it didn't go away, so you must not be doing it right. You see the incoherence of the thinking again and how it plays in and how it undercuts? As though we sit on a retreat and stuff doesn't go away. It's not even what we're doing here to make it go away because I can't make it go away. I'm the deceiver. I'm the deceived. Also, the seeing begins to slow the process down, as I said earlier. And that can make an enormous difference. You know, stop, look, and listen. It's really good meditation instruction. In the seeing, there can be just the seen. In the hearing, just the heard. And as that is just seen. If we're not seeing through the lens, or if seeing is not happening through the lens of aversion, of greeting, grasping, wanting, of confusion, there's just seeing. That's why just, just seeing an object, it, it can be helpful, it can be very useful, but just seeing the object is not going to get the job done because it's not just seeing. There's aversion mixed in there. And there's the subtle underplay of, I want it different. <clears throat> We've all run up against this. Uh, there's letting go. And there's uh, aversion in the disguise of letting go. And so on and so on. I'm not going to have time to talk much about this self-image me that gets its beginning construction at birth. Actually, before birth, if parents choose the name beforehand, right, there's already an identity getting created. Um, and, it's, and it's very powerful. Um, it, we had two miscarriages between our first daughter and our second daughter. And that first miscarriage, um, you know, you walk in, you're pregnant, you, all of a sudden, she's not. And uh, you really get a sense of you had a baby, the baby died. Somebody you were in a relationship is not coming out. It's very powerful, and it starts really early. Then the baby comes out. Megan came out. Jessica came out. Great. They get a they get a tag. <laughs> they get a label, right? So we make sure we get out of the hospital with the right one. 
right? So I get out with this one labeled Jessica as opposed to that one labeled Joan. And it goes on from there. Oh, Jess, you're so beautiful. And the facial display and you know everything that goes along with it resonates in the body, feels good. You get enough of that, creates an image. Christian Murray said, well, the bad thing about having an image is sooner or later, good or bad, somebody's going to come along and stick a pin in it. I'm a good kid. I grow up and I start getting criticized, somebody doesn't like me, whatever, and man, that image really suffers. So this self-image gets built up, it gets projected out onto other people, it gets there's a confusion around it being real. We all need an identity, okay? I'm not saying we shouldn't have an identity. Um, I don't want my refund check from the government going to you, right? It goes to Doug Phillips. It's not going to be made out to somebody else. I want that. Right? That... Um, these, the identity serves a purpose. When I go home to my house, I'm going to go into my house, not to the house next door. And when I hug the woman in the house, I better know it's my wife and not somebody else's. So we need this stuff to just get through the day. And it can be used very skillfully. But do we need an identity as a fixed thing? Is an identified being necessary? I mean, do we ever question that? What if, in fact, we're a process and not a thing? That we're dynamic action? It would shift the need to defend myself. Things would change relationally a lot. Who'd be there to insult? And again, don't check your common sense at the door. Abuse is abuse. It needs to be responded to. But in many, many other situations, if there's not an identified being, which gets to the question of who am I really, things can shift quite a bit. There's an ancient saying that um, I don't know what I am. What I am is unknown, but continuously revealing itself. That's the notion of a self as a creative process. And we circle back to learning. Because in order to learn, we can't know. Learning stops when we know, by definition. One of my early psychotherapy teachers said, above all things, don't know too soon. Because, bang, the conversation stops. So, um, The learning implies the unknown. Learning implies unknown. And so the unknown is revealing itself in our learning, in our attentive presence. This um, unknown self that's continuously emerging comes from what? Maybe that's really who we are. When we take the backward step and there's a seeing of from whence this comes, it's not knowable by the thinking process, by the mind in that way. 
And resting in simple awareness is resting in the unknown. Which moment by moment is revealing itself. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.